From Susan G. Komen, this is Real Pink, a podcast exploring real stories, struggles, and triumphs related to breast cancer. We're taking the conversation from the doctor's office to your living room. Welcome to another powerful episode of the Komen Health Equity Revolution podcast series and happy Black History Month. Each month, we invite patients, community organizations, healthcare partners, researchers, and policy advocates to spark conversations about strategies and solutions that drive the health equity revolution forward for multiple populations experiencing breast health inequities. Black women are most likely to be diagnosed with breast cancer at a younger age, at later stages, and with more aggressive types of breast cancer than white women. This underscores the importance of learning about your personal risk of breast cancer. Dr. Camila Phillips joins us today to share her insights on the value of understanding breast cancer risk in the Black community, how to advocate for yourself as a younger patient, and how lifestyle changes can contribute to lowering your risk of breast cancer. Welcome to the show, Dr. Phillips. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm very glad to be here. I am very glad to get to talk to you. Uh, it's such an important topic, and I'm, I'm very much looking forward to what you have to say about it. So uh, can you tell us about the work that you do as an OBGYN and your commitment to women's health, particularly in marginalized communities? Yes. So, you know, it's interesting. I feel like I've been working in women's health at least since junior high. Um I started at Planned Parenthood when I was in junior high. My mom made me enter this, um, the junior high and what I'm about to say are a little different, but my mom made me enter this beauty pageant, which was so not my jam. And I actually lost the beauty pageant because on my resume, I talked about my work at Planned Parenthood because I grew up in San Diego and in my community, the junior high, high schools had lockers for like adult lockers and baby lockers because our pregnancy rate, our teen pregnancy rate was so high that in order to keep women in school, they were allowed to bring their babies to school. And I told that story in the pageant, lost the pageant. My mom was upset, but I tell that brief story because I've been doing women's health, especially in underserved, marginalized communities since literally junior high. Wow. And then elevated all of that to becoming an OBGYN. And I always knew I wanted to be an OBGYN because my grandparents raised me, a matriarch raised me, my aunts, my mom, my grandparent, my grandmother, especially. And anytime they were not feeling well, sick, listen, I didn't get dinner. My hair looked crazy. I barely got to school. So they've always had a passion for women's health because if you take care of the woman, then you take care of the family, you take care of the community. And so I took this interest. Um, I trained at Bellevue, which is a very historic hospital here in New York City. Um, and I graduated from there with just such a diverse experience. Bellevue is the place where like you literally, you get off the boat, you come and we take you and we see you. And so having that diverse um, human experience in medicine, um, has eventually led me to start my own private practice where I feel like I've created a very safe space for women to talk about their health in the setting of their life experience, their trauma, 
what their culture brings to the table and how it may or may impact their health, what their family history brings, what their experience um, with the medical community, which isn't always positive, especially for marginalized community. And we get to develop plans and plans of care that help them work on their health literacy, their medical literacy, on nutrition, on exercise, understand the reasons that they need to do these preventative um, care uh, modalities like the mammogram, like ultrasound. And so, um, yeah, that's where I am right now. And it's so, so uh, rewarding. Um, and I don't take it for granted. You know, there are CEOs who don't really understand the functioning of their body. Um, and there are bus drivers and teachers and, you know, unhoused people. Like everyone deserves quality care. And that's, that's what right. we try and do. That's what I try and do is to really elevate that experience for women. I love that. I mean, everyone deserves quality care. I mean, that's just a perfect way to say it. Um, and that's why we're having this discussion. Um, so, so we know that everyone's at risk for breast cancer, but some individuals face significantly higher risk than others. So can you talk about what the factors are that might increase breast cancer risk in Black communities? Yeah. Um, there's this show that I often think about it was on Netflix and was called Black AF. And oh, I each, love that show. That? Yes, yes, it was so good. It was hilarious. Oh, so hilarious. good. Yes. It was oh, yeah. So good. Yeah. And then it also was mad educational, right? It, it was. It was. So it was informative. Yes. yes. In yeah. the most like, hey, you need to know this right. kind of way. Right. Like I'm not yeah. sugarcoating this for you to protect your feelings. You need to know this. So That's right. if you watch the show, as you know, as you did, you'll know, like every title of the show was like, uh, race, race, <laughs> racism. Yeah. Yeah. This yeah. is right. No, really. It's about racism. Like every title was so some derivation <laughs> was, about how like the issue could go back to race. Yeah. And yeah. So I, I, I embrace that because when I think about like my experience in medicine, the experience that patients share with me in the confines of our little exam rooms, um, yeah, we see higher rates of breast cancer in Black women really because it boils down to racism and the structural racism that is really kind of the core of our community, you know, there were black codes that in the 1800s prevented black people from owning land, purchasing homes, um, passing on wealth. What right. does that do to your community? You have no tax base. You mm. have no tax base. You ain't getting hospitals. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. People aren't coming yeah. and investing in those communities. Yeah, you, um, you lack infrastructure. So Right. You lack mm -hmm. infrastructure. And so yeah. what does that do to the surrounding community? They have nowhere to go, you know, right. and right. often they went to hospitals that were underserved, um, didn't have the physicians that were well-trained, or if mm -hmm. they were allowed to go to white hospitals, did not seem to receive, we know, the same level right. of care. And right. so, yeah. you know, the infrastructure based in mm -hmm. racism. 
You know, I think about, I live in Harlem, I'm in New York, and I think about all the time because I walk past a few of them. We have in Manhattan the most bus depots here. So our rates of childhood asthma in Harlem like skyrocket compared Mm. down to Chelsea. Right. I never would have thought of that. Right. Yeah. Never even occurred to me. Right. It's not accidental. So as a community, obviously, if you don't have that representation, that tax infrastructure, you're going to get a bus depot in your neighborhood. You're going to get, you know, garbage plants and all the things that come with that in your neighborhood. So when we think about how the impact the impact of the environment on de- disease the black community suffers from that. Yeah. I think about, you know, education and health literacy um how often that information doesn't trickle down so we don't really have the greatest understanding of why we do mammograms that breast can- breast cancer is not um a death sentence. Um mm. Right. These are all things that we can work on to improve um, the experience of being a Black person in medicine and dealing specifically with issues of the breast. The other two things that I probably would say are inroads is family history. Mm, um, right. That right. is a big yep. one that I know in a lot of my women when they're either diagnosed with breast cancer Right. Um, or someone in their family is. And not having ge- like that family history because of slavery and the migration of people and not having records, like that is a huge inroads that we can have. I remember really clearly a patient, she was young, um, and unfortunately expired. She was 37 with breast cancer. And mm. I was just taking care of her. She had a breast doctor. I was just randomly taking care of her for her other needs. And I was like, did you do any testing? It was a few years ago. Mm. I was like, did you do any testing for your breast cancer? You're so young. She's like, no, just, you know, I have breast cancer. I'm like, no, that's not really the answer. You don't just have breast cancer. Like you're 37. So I actually did um, a BRCA screen on her, a genetic screen on her. And she's an African-American woman. And we think of, I think doctors and even myself, my own bias, I always have to check it. Um, we think of BRCA as like five to 10% of breast cancers, right? Not a huge right. thing, but we also right. think of it in terms of the Ashkenazi Jewish population, European, like white women. And I was like, let's do this test for you. And she ended up being a BRCA carrier. And mm. it threw me because one, she didn't know anyone in her family, but there were there were rumors like grandma, you know, so she, she didn't have that history right. Two, It's such a young age that no one else had suggested to her that she did that testing. And then also in doing that testing, it sparked a conversation. Mm, her mom was yeah. actually a BRCA carrier. Wow. And like, which is really interesting because we think of that with younger cancers. Her mom was like 60 something. Right. Right. And yeah. the bro- right. And so that changes like the trajectory of everyone's life. And so I think when we talk about um, black women in particular, it's really important that we understand it's so multifactorial of why we have higher rates, less screening, 
more aggressive cancers, but at each of those time, at each of those points, we can actually do something about it. That's right. That's right. And and so you mentioned family history. I wonder if you could talk just a little bit more about like, how do you, re- like, what do you recommend patients do about sharing family history and talking about these things? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it is so interesting to me that people don't share their history with their family. And I, I, right. I'm i gonna go out on a limb, I'm gonna say it's very cultural, but I do think everyone does it. Um, people don't know why like their grandmother or their great grandmother died. Um, older generations I find are very private and have not wanted to give this information to their children or sisters or whatever. They don't want to be a burden. They don't want people to worry, et cetera, but it actually does more harm than good. And Mm -hmm. I tell people like when you're having these conversations, just, just normalize it. Just, Hey, what'd you guys do today? I went and got my mammogram. Have you gotten your mammogram recently? You know, my doctor said that we should be discussing these things. And I thought, you know, let's talk about it. How did grandma Marie die? Do you know? Um, and we start to build this data bank of information that is going to be extremely valuable and helpful for future generations. And that's a, a, the other way I put it is, okay, this might not be about you right now, but it's about your grandchildren. Yeah, that's right. right. It, right, it might yeah. not be right, but this is going to impact and help your future generations. And then the other reason I encourage people to talk about it really in just like a normalized way is it allows the person who's going through the issue, in my opinion, to, to allow and receive love and support mm, during wow. their diagnosis. Their family members can rise up, be their advocate. Um, I hear these stories all the time when like uh, someone reveals a diagnosis, the flood of community that comes to surround them yeah. in just their being vulnerable about their diagnosis, how it springs board, springboards other people getting tested, conversations in the family. So I suggest that people just normalize it. I mean, That's right. That's we right. kind of talk about our hypertension all the time. I got to mm, go take yeah. this pill. I can feel right. my pressure getting high. You're getting on my nerves. Like, just normalize it. You know, I tell it to my kids all the time. I feel you're, you're raising my pressure. I'm going to walk away. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need to use that one. I like, I like that a lot. I'm going to, I'm like, I feel the pressure. I need to, I need to step away from it. I'll, I'll be back. I'll be right back. <clears throat> I like that. Well, actually, the, so that, that brings me to my next question. Like, like what, like what are some lifestyle changes that you recommend to help mitigate some of these risks? In, in the yeah. Well, from a lifestyle perspective, I really do think that um, history is important. And knowing your history, we talked about that just so you can make the necessary modifications in terms of screening, if you need to right. be someone who's screened earlier or more often. The other thing is, and I, I, I try and not get annoyed by this this um, like lifestyle sort of branding that people are doing now, but it it's a real thing. Like we have to think about disease and illness in a really comprehensive um, 
platform and conversation at this point. So in terms of lifestyle, it's one in a weird way, like actually voting because voting is important. Voting doesn't get, (laughs) you know, major environmental hazards into your neighborhood. And Mm. we know that environmental conditions are important for chronic diseases and even sporadic things. Um, I think it is important for us to improve our health literacy. Um, there mm. should be nothing that your doctor explains to you that they can't explain on the level of a, a sixth grader. And that's not yes. to insult adults yes. or sixth graders. Really, we should be able to make things plain so people understand what's going on with their body and why it is important that we take these next steps in terms of diagnosis and um, prevention. Um, I think that people can help themselves advocate for themselves in the medical environment, especially because a lot of people just get nervous, right? With a white mm. coat, which why right. I don't wear a white coat, but bring a friend with you yeah, um, to help you hear more clearly um, what the conversation is. Take right. notes so you right. don't forget or you don't get flustered. I think all of us also really need to demand that our insurance do better. Um, that insurance companies don't look at us as like problems, but really focus on prevention in terms of nutrition and exercise and lifestyle coaching so we can manic, manage chronic disease that then leads to our increased risk of cancers and other debilitating things. Um, and I also really encourage patients, I know it sounds corny, but like, look, diet and exercise is really important. I, it really is. Yeah. The older I get, just sort of, I see it, right? Even in yourself. Yeah. Like my 47-year-old yeah. self is not doing what the 37-year-old self with the 27 year old self. Right. So, and sleep too, right? I Diet, really exercise, encourage... and sleep, right? Right. Yeah. Oh, it's aging is not for the faint of heart. Um, <laughs> so, I ask them to really think about limiting their processed foods, being very mindful of what they're putting in their body. I recognize mm. that organic food is expensive. I personally live in an area that's a food desert but really trying to control and manage their intake of their food because Mm -hmm. that impacts our health and honestly encouraging them to have a plant-based diet um, as much as possible. So I think, you know, from voting to changing diet to having uh, doctors that are receptive and engaging with patients uh, to insurance, Mm. all of those things can really help uh, elevate the experience we have and the advocacy that patients have in the medical space. Mm. That's great advice. That's great advice. So, uh, so, so shifting gears just a little bit, uh, I'm curious about just as it comes, as it relates to understanding breast cancer risk, what do you suggest women who are younger than 40 do when, when screening recommendations begin? Yeah, you know, I know that it can get confusing because depending on what messaging, what society, family history, all of these things that you're listening to, you're like, when do I do any of this? When do I do it? What and do I do? What's going on? Right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Like, is it an ultrasound? Is it a mammogram? I hear all these other modalities Mm. coming up. So I think first of all is, um, just really knowing what's normal for you and not Mm. ignoring that because of fear, access, a number of reasons. Sometimes people just really dismiss obvious changes in their body. And I would Mm. never recommend that. So don't ignore visible changes. Um, any enlarged lymph nodes that don't go away. We call them lumps, bumps in the office that are persistent and concern you. Any nipple discharge, pain, dimpling, like all of these things, if your body, your breasts are changing, they should be evaluated. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no right way to do it. People worry about how they do Just, Just know what's right for you and not brush right. it off. And then when you come to the office, be very clear about what you're experiencing and ask, okay, so what is the next step? What mm. is it a blood test? Is it a um, mammogram? Is it an ultrasound? Here is my family history. How is my family history going to impact that? I've heard there's some genetic tests. Um, I have or have not done one. Should I mm. do those? How does that impact my care? So I would encourage them people to not ignore what's going on um, because things are not going to just magically go away. Um, But to use what they know about their body to be their best advocate for themselves. All right. So talk more about that. Uh, How do you encourage patients to advocate for themselves? I mean, I've heard a lot of interviews, interviewees on this show have talked about the need to advocate for themselves, but for you as a provider, how do you encourage your patients to advocate, particularly if they're younger or historically marginalized? The first thing, and this might seem a little kind of off, but, and not the answer to your question, but I kind of feel like in a way, patients, especially my patients, they're like, when I get to the hospital, how do I advocate for myself? No, I should be advocating for you. And I feel like we have to re rethink this idea of advocacy and in like, and putting the responsibility on more people other than the patient. Like she's coming in, she's terrified. She doesn't have an MD. Um, It probably took her three months to get here. She just needs to like someone, Jesus, take the wheel, right? Doctors need to be, doctors, PCPs, physician assistant, whoever is the person that she meets, need to really be working on exploring our bias in our life and in medicine and really understand how that impacts patient physician, the physician patient relationship, how it impacts how she perceives my words, how she trusts my words and what I'm asking her to do or not do. Um, I think we need to be more conscious of a patient's experience both negative and positive in medicine, incorporating their culture and, and really think about her in a very holistic fashion as a doctor, as a healthcare provider, because she's, she's scared. She shouldn't have Mm -hmm. to advocate for herself. That's what we should be doing. Right. Right. So I just wanted to answer that from the doctor perspective, because when patients tell me that, I'm like, that's my job. What do you, you just go yeah. have a baby or you just go get the yeah. mammogram. You know what I mean? That's my yeah, job. Right. right. Yeah. Um, but for patients, I would say, I think it's really helpful to um, have questions before you come in, 
I can't even explain how often people just like frustrated, flabbergasted, they forgetful, you know, the three Mm, Fs. And it's important to write things down so that you make sure you're checking off your boxes and you understand what's going to happen next. Um, I have them, I say, ask questions. Okay, you're having this concern about your breasts and immediately people go to cancer, right? But ask about what else is in their differential. And the differential is like all the different things that it could possibly be. Ask your doctor, what else is in the differential? And how are we doing, is this study going to click off all those boxes so that we make sure that we're not missing anything else in the differential? Um, again, always bring something, someone with you. I, I tell my patients, like, bring your family member at your next visit because any disease state, um, again, because I believe women are like, you know, rule the world anything that in fact so i know i love I'm biased. it i love that, it no i love it that, that I love is it. my bias though right yeah i love it no it's great that's great <laughs> but because there's any condition if there's any condition that impacts a woman it inevitably is trickling through the family down to the kids mm-hmm. parallel yeah. to brothers sisters yeah. the ability to care for parents so it impacts everyone so bring someone with you to help mm-hmm. really understand how we are going to navigate this as a family especially as it relates to issues of cancer breast cancer any cancer really but the treatment that comes with that and then right. i would finally say look um you know we're not friends with all of our family. Like we distance ourselves from some family members. Not every doctor patient relationship is a good fit. Mm. And so if you have to explore other relationships so that you have a better understanding of your health, you feel easier with communication, you leave the room feeling empowered, then sometimes Mm. we just, we got to do that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, right. and I that's have right. patients yeah. all the time who are like, oh, you know, I just felt so bad. We've been together for 20 years. And I'm like, oh, okay. I, I understand that you guys, you know, built a relationship over time, but like your needs are changing, your concerns are changing and that's mm-hmm. okay. Doesn't mean right. any right. love loss, but really the most important person in the room is you. That's so right. we got to get right. that taken care of. As the patient, they've got to do what's right for them. For them. And, and yeah. It doesn't matter about everything else. So, all right. So then last question, uh, and I, I, you're kind of, you've kind of moved in this direction already several oh, okay. times, right? Mm-hmm. So, so what does it mean for you as a provider to be in partnership with your patients and how can other providers do the same? Yeah. Um, you know, I think as a provider, part of my job is honestly to see people win. I love when we see people win, you know, um, it makes my job honestly easier because Mm -hmm. you're living your best life. You're taking care of your family, friends, you're able to work, you're able to provide. And so, um, it means a lot for me to be in partnership with someone because it means you're going to win. And Mm. I think that when I think of partnership, it really is sort of like a marriage and marriage to me is not 50 50 it's kind of like a hundred and a hundred it's a hundred and a hundred that's right that is right yes that's it yeah i love it right everyone's doing their job all the time yep that's it so my ability to 
um, partner with someone in their health, meet them where they are in that health journey, um, learn about the fears that they have that might be barriers to care, the family issues, the medical knowledge that might be barriers to care, all of that. Their, their negative experiences in medicine that might be barriers to care. So I don't uh, inadvertently repeat those or send them to the mm-hmm. same place or, you know, all of those things are really critical. Um, and I think helping patients win. So that that's how I, I sort of see myself. I love that. Uh, Dr. Phillips, you I've got to just be an amazing doctor. Um, I'm, I, I, love, I love your approach uh, in, in how you advocate for your patients. Um, so thank you for the work that you're doing. And just thank you for joining Thanks. us on the show today and sharing your experience and your expertise. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I hope people learn from this and I hope doctors learn from it too. And I look forward to talking to you again. Uh, me too. I would love that. And thank you for joining another episode of the Komen Health Equity Revolution podcast series. We will continue to galvanize the breast cancer community to support multiple populations experiencing breast health inequities to advance and achieve breast health equity for all. Because ending breast cancer needs all of us. To learn more about health equity at Susan G. Komen, please visit komen.org forward slash health equity. Thanks for listening to Real Pink, a weekly podcast by Susan G. Komen. For more episodes, visit realpink.komen.org. And for more on breast cancer, visit komen.org. Make sure to check out at Susan G. Komen on social media. I'm your host, Adam. You can find me on Twitter at AJ Walker or on my blog, adamjwalker.com.